0: Our first reading is from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 44, verses 4 to 14, which is on page 732 in the Bibles we provide. Then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord, and I fell on my face. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears, all that I shall tell you concerning all the statutes of the temple of the Lord and all its laws. And mark well the entrance to the temple and all the exits from the sanctuary. And say to the rebellious house, to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, enough of all your abominations in admitting foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and flesh, to be in my sanctuary, profaning my temple, when you offer to me my food, the fat and the blood. You have broken my covenant, in addition to all your abominations, and you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep my charge for you in my sanctuary. Thus says the Lord God, no foreigner, uncircumcised in heart and flesh, of all the foreigners who are among the people of Israel, shall enter my sanctuary. But the Levites, who went far from me, going astray from me after their idols, when when Israel went astray, shall bear their punishment." They shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the temple and ministering in the temple. They shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before the people to minister to them. Because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel, therefore I have sworn concerning them, declares the Lord, and they shall bear their punishment. They shall not come near to me to serve me as priest, nor come near any of my holy things and the things that are most holy but they shall be- they shall bear their shame and the abominations that they have committed yet i will appoint them to keep charge of the temple to do all its service and all that is to be done in it the word of our lord our second reading is from the book of john chapter 1 verses 14 to 18 which is on page 886 in the bibles we provide No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The gospel of Christ.
1: And we come again to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 12 and we'll read down through verse 20. We come in our study of 1 Corinthians to the end of this first section. Paul has been Answering questions that were raised or addressing problems that were reported to him by a group whom he refers to in chapter 1 as Chloe's people. They visited Paul, they've said this church that you love, the church you planted, the church where you've spent so much time is torn apart by division and conflict and quarreling. And these are the problems that we see. And he comes to the end of that section now. Uh, In chapter 7, verse 1, he'll turn Uh, to address questions raised in a letter that they'd sent him. He'll say, now concerning the matters about which he wrote. So this is a kind of summary of this first section, and he picks again one issue that is representative of the problem in the Corinthian church's understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may well have wondered as Lola read that long first text from Ezekiel. Now, what does this have to do with uh, what we're going to be studying? Uh, I thought it was another indication of how seriously God takes a place that bears His name and where, in that case, the Old Covenant Temple, uh, his, His glory representatively dwelt. It was a picture to the people of Israel, that God was in their midst. It was a building made with hands, and yet because God said, I will dwell here in the midst of you, I'll put my glory there. God was angry with those who'd been entrusted with keeping his temple because they hadn't done it. They'd let anybody wander in, anything happen in there, and they hadn't realized the holiness of the presence of God and the meaning of a place that bears his name and where he places his glory. And that's precisely what he's gonna be talking about in these verses that we're going to look at. Uh, Also in John 1, we're reminded that the heart of it is not God inhabiting buildings made of stone, but rather inhabiting human beings supremely depicted in that incredible revelation that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory, as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So now hear what Paul writes, beginning with verse 12 of chapter 6. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The word of the Lord. In every age, in every part of the church, there is a tendency to grab hold of one part of the truth, and to mistake it for the whole. The Corinthians had done that. We have done it in Reformed Evangelicalism. Every part of the church is in danger of doing it. And so the Word is always calling us back to the heart of the matter. What is the gospel and what does the gospel do? What does it do? That's what Paul is addressing in these verses as he uses another illustration, another example of sexual immorality there at Corinth that was not just being tolerated but apparently being celebrated as a way in to address the deeper issue of their misunderstanding of what it was all about. Too many of us who've been raised as evangelicals, I'm speaking at least to myself, tend to think that the gospel is about getting the words right and the ritual right and being part of the right group. In other words, it's making sure that our doctrine as stated and confessed accords with what we see in Scripture. And I'm not for a moment diminishing the importance of it but I'm saying that we must never forget those, for me, awful in the sense of fearful and awe-inspiring words that Paul wrote back in chapter 4, verse 20, when he said, "'The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power.'" I believe that the central revelation of the Scripture is John 1.14. All of the nations, all people, everywhere, until it gets trained out of them. Believe that there is a God. Believe that there's one who made all this, that it didn't just happen however it happened. Behind it, there is someone, and that that one ought to be worshiped and served and feared, obeyed. What does he want of me? It is in every culture, it is in every human heart, even those who most refuse or or will say, I don't believe any of it. You stick a gun in their face and the first thing they cry out is, God help me. It's Hemingway's famous passage from one of his early works where he wrote all morning as the bombardment moved closer, I lay in the mud. And as the shots began to come near, I cried out, God, please have mercy on me, protect me. I promise if you'll just get me out of here, I'll be a missionary. I'll spend the rest of my life serving you. I'll do whatever you want. Just save me. God, help, help. At noon, the bombardment lifted. The rain stopped. I didn't tell the girl I went upstairs with at the Villa Rosa about Jesus, and I never told anyone. That's the human heart. Everybody knows there's a God. The question is, who is he? And the Bible says, the Word became flesh. Jesus said, God's not that monster you fear. When you see me, you see the Father. I and the Father are one. I've come to show you who he is. I have come to show you who I am. I have come to bring you out Of simply having Word to where it takes flesh. And I told you a couple weeks ago that my biggest fear looking back on my own life and ministry is that so much of my ministry has been taking the living, incarnate Christ and the gospel that is to be incarnate in the midst of the world, and explaining it, in effect turning the majestic Word made flesh back into mere words. And that's the stock and trade of evangelicalism. That's our strength. Bible studies, more Bible studies, doctrine, more doctrine, teaching, more teaching. If we get the words right, we'll have it, and Paul says, the kingdom of God is not about talk, but about power. What does he mean? Well, he comes clear in these verses. He says two things, really, that he's doing here. The first, all in verse 12. In verse 12, he wants to address and really get into the deeper discussion through the Corinthians' misunderstanding of the nature of Christian freedom. But he wants to use that, beginning in verses verse 13 and following down through 20, to address the deeper issue of their misunderstanding of the nature of Christian spirituality. In other words, what is a Christian life? And why does it matter? So I want us to look at those two things. First, if I can sort of put them out there for you to think about, in verse 12 he will argue in two ways or from two directions, that when we think about Christian freedom, we need to realize that it's not about what is lawful or permissible, but rather about what is good. And when it comes to understanding Christian spirituality, Christian life, it is crucial that we not think in terms of dualism, but in terms of sacramentalism. What do I mean by that? Well, we'll be there in a minute. But essentially, it's not some airy-fairy cognitive or mystical thing. It is flesh and blood reality where you and I live our lives. So how does he do this? Verse 12, Paul addresses what is obviously the problem they were having, and he accepts their basic premise because they'd probably gotten it from his earlier letter or from something he'd taught when he was with them. They're clearly quoting back to him as an excuse for their behavior. So, Paul says, okay, all things are permissible, but What was their misunderstanding? This seems very clearly to have been their argument. They were saying, Paul has already told us that we're not under law, but under grace. If we're not under law, then ultimately it's not a matter of what we do at all, it's what we believe. And the body that God gave us has appetites. It was made for food, and when we get hungry, we eat but we're also made for sexual pleasure. God made us that way, and so it's okay when we desire that to go after that, even if it means going to a prostitute. It's fine, it's natural. And besides, all things are permissible because we're not under law, we're under grace. And Paul says, O contraire, hop along. And let me show you why. And he does it in two ways. First of all, he says, okay, let's accept the premise, even though you've misunderstood what I was saying. We'll accept your premise. All things are permissible, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Now, you and I know that. This is a couple of illustrations, make sure we're all on the same page, but I mean, it's obvious. People in our age, one of the problems with our age is that people tend to use that as an actual argument for their, their ethic. Well, it's legal. It's not against the law, no law against, that's an expression with, hey, there's no law against it. Well, that's a pretty shoddy way of establishing an ethic. There's no law against living off of hamburgers, french fries, and chocolate shakes. But it's not wise. I mean, if, if you do that, Uh, you're not going to get arrested, except perhaps by your heart. But the fact is, it's a lousy way to live and you're going to end up paying for it. A lot of us, maybe most or all of us, need to ask ourselves the degree to which we are completely addicted by our electronics, particularly our smartphones. Uh, I, a few months ago, went to meet one of you all for lunch, and I left my phone on my desk. And I pulled in, walked in, didn't see the guy I was supposed to mate, so I reached for my cell phone, and it wasn't there. And I ran back to the car and looked, and it wasn't there. And you'd have thought I forgot my pants. I mean, <laughs> I was, what, what am I going to do? What if he doesn't come? What if I've got the wrong restaurant? What if it's not this time? What if it's not this day? How am I to check? What if he's calling? How am I going to be in touch? And then I went in and I thought, well, I'll go sit down. I'm sure I've got the right day, the right time. I'll sit down and he'll show up. And then I sit down and I'm going, what am I going to do? I can't check my email. I can't check to find out what's happening this very moment in the news. Uh, you know, I was really just sort of lost. And then I realized what was going on and I thought, this is ridiculous. 12, 15 years ago, this was life. I used to enjoy sitting and watching people. I used to be a people watcher. I haven't done that in years. So I thought, this is going to be fun. I'm just going to sit here, enjoy myself, watch people. Everybody was on their cell phone, even people that were were together. (laughs) All things are lawful, but not all things are good. And the second tack addresses that. We are all terribly addictive in one area of life or another. So he says all things are lawful and even good things like cell phones, helpful things. You say that's helpful. It is. But Paul says I don't want to be in bondage to anything because then in the name of freedom you've just lost your freedom. I don't know anybody, and boy, back in the day I was in the middle of a lot of it. I don't know anybody that has ever gone out and started doing drugs and drinking saying, I want to become a drug addict. I think I'll be an alcoholic when I grow up. No, you reach that age, you say, now I can go get something. Some people can, they enjoy it, they walk away from it. Other people, their life goes down the drain and they say, I would give anything, anything to be able to quit this. I remember never been until my cell phone is addicted to anything as I used to be at smoking. And I just lit one off the other. And I remember Mary Ann's dad had emphysema and was in bad heart, all from smoking. I'm sitting across from him, we're both lighting one off the next, and I'm hearing him try to draw his breath and, you know, I'm young and feeling good, but I'm thinking, oh, no, I don't want to. And so I remember sitting there that night and thinking, this will kill me if I keep it up. I don't need to do this. I could quit this any time. I remember thinking, what is causing me? We are so addictive. And Paul says, if you are a Christian, you need to understand that simply saying, I'm free in Christ to do this, isn't telling you much of anything, because the question a Christian should be asking is, is this helpful to me and helpful to others? Is this really a good thing? And secondly, if it is, it may be a good thing, but is my particular area of brokenness, or perhaps my spouse's or my kids or my best friend's area of brokenness, something where this is going to be bad for them? He's saying we're not living for ourselves. So, yeah, declare your freedom, but, but, What about the brokenness? Now you say, well, we all have that. We're all on the same page. No, we're not. I read blogs. I read stuff being printed by a lot of young evangelicals, and they'll celebrate this brokenness and say, this is what brings the world to us. They can identify we're just as broken as they are. We're just as big a mess as they are. And when they see what messes we are that we've got, we're doing all the same stuff, have all the same struggles, but they realize it doesn't matter because we're forgiven. Oh, it's so liberating. Oh, yeah? Is that why American churches are emptying? while churches in the rest of the world are filling, the world looks and scorns and says, why would I waste my time with that if it doesn't make any difference? And how can you be so arrogant as to say, because you got the words right, you have an eternity with God's smile? while the rest of us who are exactly like you are doomed and damned. The world sees through that tragic lie that is consuming so much of the American church. It is a lie. The kingdom of God does not consist of words, talk, but of the word made flesh. So. Now beginning in verse 13, he digs down into that because that's where Paul wants to go. And Paul says, really deals with it in two ways. Don't you know that your bodies, now he's addressing the whole group there, your bodies are members of Christ. What does he mean by that? Well, this is a theme throughout Paul. He says, we are the body of Christ. It's not a metaphor, it's a reality. Most of us think, and the church has taught too often in its history, that the incarnation, God becoming flesh, was something that happened in the first century A.D. for a period of what, 30, 35 years, and then it was over. Jesus rose, he ascended, and that was the incarnation, and we believe in it. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Paul said, we are the body of Christ. The head is in heaven. We are here. God still walks the earth through his people. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says there are really only two races. There is the race of the old humanity by nature into which every one of us is born with all of its brokenness. And then there is the new humanity of those who by grace have died in Christ, been raised in Christ, and are now living Christ. In fact, I've told you before that something I've managed to miss in a lifetime of reading theology and church history and the rest, but that I finally saw this year in spending time with the church fathers, is that the church fathers said that what, the, what Paul was teaching and what the apostles passed on to them was that when God created in his image after his likeness, male and female, what he was doing was showing that he, the one God who is in more than one person, was creating one humanity, one man, if you will, that is both male and female, and that consists now of billions of people. And it was meant like God to walk together in unity and love and community and do his will and that our sin shattered it. The great Augustine wrote that this one man, Adam, lying broken in a million different pieces in Christ has been brought back together and is once again one new man, one new person, one new humanity. That was how they understood Romans 5. That's why Paul says, don't you know that you are members of Christ's body? Would Christ do the things that you are doing? Can you, in good conscience, take Christ? into those places and have Christ doing those things that you say you're free in Christ to do? God forbid. No, a thousand times no. He says when you're involved in immorality, you become one flesh with that person, but you're you're one spirit with Christ, so you are taking him there and involving him, as it were, in a menage. He says, can't you see how horrible that is? How grotesque. And to claim Christian freedom and say, I'm not under law, I'm under grace, so it's okay. He says, you don't understand what you are or who you are. We say, but how does that happen? How does it work? How can we say we're members of Christ? He then says, do you not know that your body, now he goes to singular, he wants to make sure that we understand as individuals. Don't you know that your body is a temple? Of the Holy Spirit. That's why we read the temple piece from Ezekiel. God cares about his temple. He cares about the place where his glory dwells. His glory dwells in the lives of his people. The same Holy Spirit who filled, empowered, and directed the life of Jesus is now to fill, empower, and direct the life of every one of us who is His. And that is to make all the difference in the world. Does it not then matter what we believe? Of course it does. Truth matters. Untruth is cruel. But the truth is once again to take flesh in you and me perfectly? Not yet, but in a whole new trajectory, because when God gives us His Spirit, we are put to death in Christ, the old life over, and we are raised up in Him. And now, as Paul always says, we are to begin learning to be what we are already in Christ. Be what you are. That's what Paul, what Paul always says. And that is why, as I say so often to you, not because I think you don't get it, I say it so often because I say it to myself multiple times every week. I have to remind myself of this to push against the entire weight of my whole theological background, which immediately turns it all to a matter of talk and words. Every judgment scene in the Bible, and particularly the two that Jesus describes in Matthew, the one described cryptically in Matthew 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and the other described quite fully in Matthew 25. Every judgment scene, Jesus never once says, You will be asked what you believe. You will be asked to quote the Nicene Creed, perhaps the Athanasius if you look suspicious. Never. Why? Because it doesn't matter. No, but because the only way we know what we believe is in the evidence of a life that's being changed. And if our lives are not being changed, we don't yet believe it. I mean, we know that, but we don't know it. We know it everywhere out there, but in here. If I put in front of you a cup of poison, And I say, do you want to live? And you say, oh, I have so many things I still want to do. Yes, I want to live. And I say, if you drink that, you will die. And you go, I believe you. I completely believe you. That's the church today. Saying, we believe in Jesus. We're with you. He says, follow me. We say, we may catch you later. But we want you to know we're trusting you for salvation. We're trusting you for forgiveness of sin, but we've still got some things to do this way. All that that means is we don't yet believe in Him. The world needs a church, and it's getting it. A church in China, a church in Asia, a church in South America, a church in Africa. They aren't perfect. There are serious problems with life as well but there is a far greater sense of urgency. And those of us who travel and spend time with them, once they trust us, will almost inevitably hear them say, please don't be offended, but what's going on with the church in America? What's going on? The end of the matter. I'm talking to myself. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell,